0: Today we are continuing our series entitled Family Life. And our message today is really geared toward the teenagers. We've talked to moms, we've talked to dads, we've even talked to children, but we're going to be talking to our our teens. And today's message is called Someone Lied to Our Teens. So if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, a very famous passage of Scripture. This is what it says. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in faith, excuse me, in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. It's such a brief verse, but it's so filled with power for us. And I'm going to read it one more time and just let the words leap off the page and get down right inside your spirit. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and impurity. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Literally means don't, uh, here to count uh, to count as of no importance the opinions of others. That, that what they think doesn't matter. Another way to say it might be, let no one tell you that your youth is not of any importance. So let's pray together and then we'll get into the word. Heavenly Father, I humble myself before you now in front of all these people and God, I know that I'm the least likely person in the world to speak to any kind of young person today about living their teen years for God, because, Lord, I know I failed you miserably in my teenage years. Who am I to speak? And yet, God, it was also during my teenage years that you became real to me. So I know, God, that you can work in teenage hearts. I know that there are teenagers in this audience and uh, 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 that they are living for you and and Lord, I'm not even unworthy to, to, un, to tie their shoelaces. But, uh, but God, I, I know that you've called me to be their pastor. And, and, and so, Lord, I just pray that, that you would just do what you want to do today. God, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit will come upon me, that you would well up inside of, of me and inside of every one of us, that you would speak to us today. I pray that every young person, every adult, every child would say, I didn't so much as hear from the pastor today, but I heard from God. And I believe you for that. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. A few years ago, a youth leader taught a class to some junior high students at a youth camp. And as a part of that class, uh, the teacher distributed a a questionnaire and and asked the students to fill it out anonymously. And many, many of the answers were very touching. Many were very engaging, but there was one answer, one survey that really stood out. And I want to share with you some of the questions and answers from this junior high boy. This is an eighth grade boy at a Christian youth camp. Here's here that was the list that he answered. Things I wish I could change. Nothing. When I was growing up, I always wanted to be nothing. My biggest disappointment, disappointment right now is other people. The thing I hope for most in life is Nothing. If I could give a million dollars, if I could be given a million dollars, the person I would spend it on is me. If God could answer one prayer of mine this week, it would be nothing. If I could change one thing about me, it would be nothing. The thing that gets me most down is, He answered life. The thing that gets me most excited about life is, He answered when it is finally over. That's an eighth grade boy. When I hear that, I, I, I think what could an eighth grade boy be going through that he would say that the most exciting thing about life is when it's finally over. This is a boy who has not learned the value of his own life. We dare not hold uh, as of no account with, without value that great gift that we're given for only a fleeting time, the gift of youth. There, there's a balance here and, and we, we must have that balance. First of all, We must value the gift for what it is. Youth is a gift that you can present to God, but it is a fleeting gift. Can I get an amen for everybody here that's a little bit older? It's a fleeting gift. You can can never give your youth to God later in life. You can never do that. Young people, listen to me. The Bible says to give to God your first fruits. The first fruits of your life, and and, and now what happens is that sometimes we squander our youth, we despise it, we count it as of uh, uh, as of no account, we do not give it to God, and if you're young the the only thing that you really have to give to God in that moment is your youth but then sometimes we squander it on ourselves we count it as of no value we say it doesn't really matter i'll do real life later on when i get older but but we don't think of it as a as a gift worthy of of giving to God and therefore we waste it and 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 then when we're 21 or 25 or or we're really old like 28 you know we can hardly walk you know that's how it is when I was 14, I thought 28 was really, really old. You know, we barely walk anymore. But then we are finally get to where we're no longer young. And I've heard countless numbers of people come to me and say, I wish I would have given my life to God when I was young. I wish I would have served God when I was a teenager. I wish I would have given my youth to God. But now it's over with. It's done. It's too late. So, so now listen to this. You can either give God your youth or you can steal your youth from God. If anything is worth counting a value of significance, then it is worth presenting to God as a gift. Paul wrote in Romans 12:1, therefore, I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, here's the question for you. And this is true for everybody of every age. At what point do we have control of our bodies? The answer is now. Now we we cannot give your, God your body. You can't give your, God your body yesterday. You can't give your God your body tomorrow. All you have is right now. Therefore, if you're young, you can give God your youth now. But if you waste it, if you say later, I'll I'll do great things later. I'll get my life straightened out. Then you will never ever again have the opportunity opportunity to give God your youth. On the other hand. While we value youth, we must also say to ourselves that though this gift of youth is precious and important, and and it's this fleeting gift, we we can't get stuck there. Youth is not an end in itself. Youth is life in transition. We, We have become, and I think you'll agree with me here, we have become a nation of youth worshipers. You know what I'm talking about? We've, we, as a nation, we want to be young. We value youth. And there, there, there's nothing any, in the world any sillier than grown up people are trying to act younger than they really are. You know, it's, it's what makes teenagers cringe when moms and dads try to use the latest slang. They're all like, just, just don't, just don't. And sometimes we do it just because, I am going to tell you, teenagers, sometimes we do it because we like the reaction we get from you. That's why we do it. But, but there's nothing more ludicrous and absurd than watching some big full-grown man who's stuck in his fraternity house days and he's still living like an adolescent sophomore. We have so many young men today that are just really boys who shave. They've never grown up. they're stuck in their childhood. They're still playing video games all their, their whole time the whole uh, time that they uh, that they have any freedom and and, and they, they don't want to accept responsibility. They want to live their life. And it's just sad. And, and, and there's nothing sillier than a grown woman who dresses and talks like she's still 16. She's 55 years old and still trying to dress like a 16 year old. And frankly, it just looks silly and pathetic. And I just, you just want to say to these people for, for Pete's sake, just grow up, you know, but the fact of the matter is that, that, that these people are the product of a culture that has said, don't grow up. They're, they're the product of a culture that despises not youth, but they despise old age. It, they just, they despise, that despises maturity, that despises growth, that, that says to people, just get stuck right where you are. This is why you have movie stars that are, that are, you know, 75 years old and their faces are, are, have been drawn up so tight that, that if you bounce a quarter off of it, it's gonna knock your block off bouncing back at you, you know? It's just, we, we just don't understand. We value youth instead of valuing, valuing maturity. Now now listen, as I said, youth is a valuable, valuable time. It's a precious time that we must not despise or look down on, but we have to remember youth is not an end in itself. What is youth? Youth is simply life in transition. The teenage years is that time where you're transitioning from childhood to adulthood. Parents, grandparents, I'm, I'm the parent of two girls, one of them is, is still in the teenage years, but listen to me just a moment, can I say this? Over the years, my goal in child rearing has changed. I think that most Americans, American parents make a great mistake when we, when, as we approach our children's teenage years, because we set our goal to raise happy teenagers. And I believe that's a terrible mistake. It's not that I want my kids to be unhappy, it's that that's not the overriding goal, that's not the ultimate goal that I have for my teenage daughter is is not my goal to have a happy teenager. My goal is to have a happy, healthy, holy adult one day. My goal is to help them transition to become the, the women of God that God created them to be. The goal of parenting is not to get kids to 16 or 17 and 18 and have them to be happy. Now, I like it when they're happy. Everybody's happy when they're happy. But that's not the ultimate goal that I have for them. When they're when they're those ages, what I want for them is to learn some lessons about life so that they're ready for when they transition in as they transition adulthood. The goal of parenting is to get your kids through the teenage years, to get them through 16, to get them past 17, to get them beyond 18, and to have them move into adulthood. Okay, but you're, you're a teenager for just a little while. It's, a, it's like a fleeting moment. 12 is over, and then 13 is there, and, and then in just a moment you wake up, and, and 19 is over, and you're 20 years of age, and those two teenage years are just done for. The teenage years are some of the most fleeting, and brief periods of life, and it's lived at an accelerated pace. Everything is full bore, and yet we turn our our eyes inward on youth. We fasten in on our teen years, and the world says to stay right there. Teenagers, listen to me for just a moment. There are many, many, many teenagers who are dwarfed in their approach to maturity and their ability to actually find happiness in life because they set as their goal to be a happy teenager. Can I say, don't worry about being a happy teenager. Don't even worry about it for a moment. The goal of life is not to be a happy teenager. The goal is to get through the teenage years and to turn into a happy, productive, whole, sane, reasonable, rational, sanctified, blood washed child of the King who is a full grown adult. And let me just say, we could use a few of them in our world today. That's the goal of life. Don't set your goal to be a, a happy teenager. Set your goal to be a happy and a holy adult. I, I believe that somewhere along, along the line, Satan sold a pack of lies to the American teenager. And I believe that Satan has, has lied to our teens. There are a vast multiplicity of these lies. I'm, I've just isolated a few of those lies for this morning. Uh, by, by observing American culture and by spending a, a great deal of my life in youth ministry, I spent almost half of my entire life in ministry. Well, half of my ministry, I should say. Uh, but I was in youth ministry for about 20 years. And so I, over the years in observing culture, I believe that I've been able to identify a few of these lies that have been the most productive for the kingdom of darkness. The, these are the lies that have yielded, I think, the, mo- the greatest results for Satan and for his host that opposes the health and the happiness and holiness of our American teenagers. These are some of the lies, those lies. So the first lie. Now listen to this teenager. The first lie that Satan wants you to believe, and and this is prevalent throughout our culture, is that short-term gratification brings long-term happiness. That if you get what you want now, the world tells you and the enemy tells you, you will be happy for a long time, for the long term. Satan wants you to believe that short-term gratification of your teenage years is what's really important. And this may be the lie that destroys the long-term happiness of more people than any other lie in America. And it's not just a lie that's told to teenagers, but it certainly is told to teenagers. I, I believe that this lie may well have been the most productive lie for Satan in our society of any lie that he's told. But my, my, I mean, when, when will we ever learn this? The, the, the short-term gratification of the flesh in teenage years, never, ever, ever brings long-term happiness. Never does. Instead, it brings long-term long-term unhappiness in the highest order. For a moment of stolen sex in the backseat back of an automobile, for a moment of gratification of the flesh, and what's happened? A child is created, a disease is transmitted, a, a conscience is sullied, a heart is corrupted, a spirit is wounded, a sin is committed, and a lifetime. A lifetime of sin and grief is born. I know a pastor who sat in his office counseling with a young married couple. and There there was deep, deep bitterness in their hearts toward each other. And they had two children and they they were on the verge of breaking up. The pastor spent a lot of time trying to get to the bottom of it all, trying to find out what the problem was, the root issue. And finally, he, he asked the question at one point in time. He said, let me ask you a question. Did you two have premarital sex? Were you sleeping with each other before you got married? Well, spontaneously, the young wife just burst out in tears, and she said, yes, yes, and I hate him for it. They'd been married for years now, years. They're both Christians. They produced two children, married for years. But she still feels that bitterness and that resentment that this young man who was supposed to be the spiritual leader in their relationship, whose God-given responsibility it was to lead her closer to God and to the things of the kingdom, kingdom of God betrayed her conscience and led her into seduction and she still resented him for it all these years later. Not only that, when the tears began streaming down her face and she said, I hate him for that, you know what he said? He said, and I hate her too. He said, how do I know that I'm the only one remember they've been married for years he said if she would sleep with me before we were married how do I know that she wouldn't sleep with anybody else after we're married years later now the trust was broken before it was ever had a chance to be to, to form Young people, listen, I know I'm not any kind of a diplomat. It's probably not proper to talk about the stuff in church, but I'm just not smart enough to beat around the bush very well. I just give it to you. But listen to me, young people. I'm talking to you from my heart, and I believe I'm also talking from the heart of God. Make a long-term decision for holiness, and you will know long-term happiness. Because it's not going to—it's—it's not going to be a happiness based on a momentary decision, but you will know a happiness that comes from knowing God, from walking with God, from experiencing His presence on a daily basis. I'm telling—if you could see this one thing, if you could get this one thing today down, you would have great profit for your life make a short-run decision for the gratification of the flesh, and you will, in one way or another, directly or indirectly, you will know long-term unhappiness. If we can only find a way to express express to our teenagers uh, that the moment of short-term pleasure brings long-term unhappiness, it would go go a long way in helping them become the adults that God intended them to be. The second lie. The second lie that Satan has told told young people is this. Now, This is a subtle and evil lie, but he has told young people that it's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to be a Christian. Don't commit yourself to be a Christian because you probably can't make it. It's hard. You maybe do it later when you, when you, when you, uh, after you've had some fun or whatever, but it's tough to put your shoulder to the wheel and put your nose to the grindstone and live year after year after year after for Christ. Listen, I'm, I'm going to to tell you that is a filthy rotten lie. And I rebuke that lie in the name of Jesus. It's not hard to be a Christian. It's not hard to wake up in the morning and know that your sins are forgiven. It's not hard to know that your wife is in love with Jesus and she's in love love with you. It's not hard to know that you've got your soul and you've got your sanity. It's not hard to know that your sins are forgiven. It's not hard to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not difficult to have a focus in life and a meaning and purpose in life. It's not difficult to live sane and happy. It's not difficult. Do you want to know what is hard? What is hard? The Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard. I'll tell you what's hard. What's hard is to have that doctor sit across the desk and say, I've got bad news. You've got a sexually transmitted disease and we can't cure it. It's not hard to live as a Christian. I'll tell you what's difficult. It's difficult to have to look your dad in the eye and say, I'm pregnant. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll tell you what's hard. It's hard to have hatred and bitterness and sin and guilt and condemnation uh, 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 on the morning after. It's hard to hate yourself and to hate each other because of sin. Satan has lied to you. He's told you that it's hard to be a Christian, but it's not hard to be a Christian. What's hard is to die at 56 of cirrhosis of the liver because of, of the hold that alcohol has had on you. No, it's not hard to be a Christian. What's hard is to see illegitimate children spawned by people who don't care about about them. Don't tell me that it's hard to be a Christian. I'm I, And listen, I understand that you live in a world that you face opposition, but that doesn't mean that it's hard for me to wake up and know that I'm right with God. It is a joy to live as a Christian. It is a privilege to live as a Christian. It is a rich, full, loving, wonderful life. It is not hard to live as a Christian. How did Satan ever sell that lie? What kind of dopes believe that? Why did I believe that? I spent several years of my life looking for a party somewhere, and it never, ever paid out for me. I I spent years of my life when I was a teenager searching for the next fun thing, the next party, the next booze, the next whatever it might be. I I, I spent my time looking for this, thinking that it would bring me happiness, but I pursued sin like a hound dog, and the only thing it ever gave me was guilt and fear and anxiety and depression. Why in the world are our young people killing themselves and each other at the rate that they are? We have one of the highest teenage suicide rates in the world. Our children are killing themselves, why? Well, I believe it's because they have believed the lie of the enemy that it's difficult, that it's hard, that it's painful to be a Christian, but it would bring joy and happiness and fulfillment to live under the power and bondage of sin. And they yielded themselves to it, thinking that they're yielding themselves to find happiness. And they submitted to that lie, and it never, ever paid out what it promised it would pay out. Satan is a liar, and Satan is a thief. He comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And teenagers, you've got to get this in your mind. You need to know Satan is not a gentleman. He is a lethal beast. He is a roaring lion. He has one focus in his entire existence. And that focus is to rip your throat out, to kill you off, to make you dead spiritually for the rest of your life. You know, American teenagers are the silliest things in the world when they try to toy with Satan. When they, you know, one foot in the the church and one foot in the world... You toy with the devil, you toy with sin, you toy with the flesh, and they think they can toy with God. Well, in the first place, God will will not be mocked. And in the second place, Satan won't be toyed with. Satan intends to destroy. You've got to get this in your mind. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your happiness. He wants to ruin everything for you. And I want to spare you some of the grief and some of the nightmare of depression that I went through because I believe those lies. Play, Satan is not playing. Do you think you can have just a little bit of sin, a little bit of the world, a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of God, a little bit of Satan? It never ever works that way. There, there's a singer that sings a song that's a little bit of amu- a, bit, a little bit amusing, but he sings this. and the song, it says, don't let the devil ride because if you let him ride, he's going to want to drive. And that's exactly right. If you let him in the back seat, the next thing you know, he's going to be in the front seat struggling for control of the wheel. And it will happen in a New York minute. Friends, my young friends, I implore you in the name of Jesus, deep down inside of yourself, rebuke the lie of the enemy. It is not hard to be a Christian. It's the most wonderful, fulfilling, exciting, adventuresome, joyful life known to man. There is no other life. Without Christ, there's only existence and death. So get past that. Get past your fear. Don't don't say to yourself, it's hard. Just say to yourself, no, God has empowered me. This is a beautiful thing I get to do. So the first lie is that short-term gratification will bring long-term happiness. That's a lie. The second lie is that it's hard to be a Christian. That's a lie. The third lie is, is that you have to be rebellious. You have to be rebellious. You know, everybody says when a teenager rebels, well, it's just a phase. They all got to go through it. No, no, that's not true. That is not true. Where did this ever come from? Why do we ever believe this? Whatever convinced us that just because you've turned 13, all of a sudden you have to rebel. Now, I understand that there's a process where you, uh, you 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 gain your independence because that's part of the process of becoming an adult, but you can do that without rebelling against your parents. Uh, the, the Chippewa Indians have a fascinating thing that I learned about. French explorers, when they learned about this, they called the custom au contraire. And it just means to be contrary. So these young Indians would suddenly declare themselves in front of the whole tribe, as the French would describe it. They declared themselves all contraire. And they they would mount their horses backwards. They would put their clothes on backwards. They'd do everything that they possibly could do in a contrary fashion just to prove that they're not doing the things the way the pro- tribe is doing. They're not doing things the way their parents were doing. They're not doing the things the way their grandparents did. And of course, the problem, the problem with that is what good can come of that? What good can come of that? If you mount your horse backwards and charge off, you're going to run into a tree eventually, <laughs> right? You know, I think back to my own teenage years, my parents thinking that I was the nicest young man in the church going out drinking with my friends after work. I think about all the nightmare that I put them through. Think about all the things, all of the grief, all of the crying that I put them through. And I, I think to myself, wasn't there somebody who could have said to me, don't you understand, you don't have to do this. You don't have to live in rebellion. You don't have to live in a rebellion against your parents. You don't have to rebel against the church. You don't have to rebel against God. I I thought when I was a teenager, I thought it was a law, you know, as soon as you turn 13, you have to just yield your life to hell and make everything, everybody in your household miserable. I I realized I was wrong a little bit later in life. When I watched my younger sister grow up without ever rebelling against my parents. That's why somebody says, oh, they all have to go through it. No, I watched my sister. She didn't do that. She, she, uh, she never, in, in any memory of my life, did I ever see her rebel against my parents. And, and, and listen, I wish I had her story. I, I envy her story. I admire my sister for that. I wish I had her testimony. She proved to me. That you don't have to rebel in order to grow up and become independent. Uh, Listen to this: rebellion is not expected of you. You don't have to be all contraire throughout your teenage years. There's no reason that you have that you have uh, that you have to put everybody around you through the misery of your own private confusion. Now, look there there, and understand it's a confusing time. There are all kinds of things that happen from adolescence to adulthood. All the chemistry in your body changes. I mean, oh my. Hormones are pumping through your little veins like a fire hose. Everything is going at hyper speed. Everything is whirling around like that. And in the midst of that, there's, there's, uh, there's some confusion. Acne breaks out on your face and you feel uncomfortable with who you are. All of a sudden, the body, which has been one height for you for about 10 years, Suddenly doubles in size and and for about six months, you can't figure out how to make your legs and arms work like they're supposed to. We've all been through that. We, we all understand these things. But listen to me, you don't have to use all those things as an excuse to make everybody in your life miserable. I heard Dr. Mark Rutland tell a story from his high school years. He was the high, the starting quarterback in the varsity football team. And one day he went to school and he got there and he realized that he had Forgotten his football helmet. He left it at home. Now, the thing was, the team rule was if you showed up at practice without all of your gear, you had to run laps. Well, he knew that he had the second string quarterback that was just breathing down his neck hard, and, and Dr. Rutland knew that he wanted his starting job really badly, and he was worried because he didn't want to run laps in the, in the hot September sun. Uh, in full gear, but he also knew that the second-string quarterback, if he was running laps, the second-string quarterback was going to be running plays with the first-string offense. And all day long, he was just thinking about this, just dreading it, trying to figure out what to do. Well, as the time for practice rolled around, Dr. Rutland walked out across the parking lot, out of the school, across the parking lot, over to the practice field. And as he walked, he looked up, and he saw their, their, their little green rambler coming across the parking lot with his little mama just waving her arm at the window as she came. She came screeching up in the parking lot. She jumped out of the car and came running around the car with his football helmet. He was so, so glad to see that football helmet. He was so glad to see his little five-foot-tall mama. He just wanted to run over to her and say, thank you, mama, thank you, thank you, thank you. But you know what he did instead? He walked over her, he jerked that football helmet out of her hand and said, if I would have wanted this, don't you think I'd have brought it from home myself? And he took that helmet and jammed it down on his head and walked out onto the football field. And a lot of mamas here saying he would not have lived to walk across the field to the football field. But, but he had the worst practice in his life. He was miserable. He could not think about anything except that crestfallen look on his mother's face. That look was like a knife in his heart. Well, when he finally got home for practice that afternoon, his mother was in the kitchen. She was washing dishes. And he came in the back door and put his gear and his books down. And he went over, walked up behind her and put his arms around his mother. And and as he did, she she turned around and there were tears running down her cheeks. He said, Mama, I'm I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Can you please forgive me? She said, Mark, I, I forgive you. I love you. She said, but Why? Would you talk to me like that in front of your friends? He said, Mama, I don't have any idea. But he did. He knew exactly why he did it. He did it because of the enclosed culture in which he lived as a teenager that had lied to him and told him, You have to be a cool guy. You have to rebel against your parents. He believed the lie that it was more appropriate to be sullen and rebellious with his parents than it was to be gracious and grateful and loving and kind with with the woman who had given birth to him, who had nursed him to life and had changed his diapers and had raised him up and had even bought his football shoes. He was gruff and he was rude with her in that morning, that day, that afternoon in the parking lot in front of 42 high school boys that had the conglomerate IQ of the length of their shoelaces. He was more concerned that they think he was a rebellious teenager, that that he was somehow independent, that he was a big man. But he wasn't really all that rebellious, but he wanted them to think he was. What he wanted to do was put his arms around his little mother and kiss her face and say, thank God. You may have have saved my foolish hide today by bringing this football helmet to me. But the lie that he believed that somehow or another he was supposed to be rebellious deprived him, it stole from him that moment of happiness and it caused misery in the life of someone he loved. Listen, you don't have to rebel. It's all right. Teenagers, listen to me. In the name of Jesus, I want you to know I give you permission to be obedient. I thought I'd get an amen from a parent somewhere in there. It's it's okay. You, You don't have to be rebellious. In the name of Jesus, I give you permission. In the name of the sovereign almighty God with the weight of eternity and the whole counsel of scripture behind me, I give you, get this, I give you permission to enjoy your parents. It's okay. You know, all my life, you know, all my teenage years, I was so afraid that whatever girls I happen to be interested in might find out that I love my parents. You know, what a horrible thing that would be, you know. So we'd, we'd go to some restaurant somewhere and I, I don't know, the whole family's there and, and I would just make everybody miserable. I lean back in, in the chair and cross my arms and, you know, I don't know who's there who's watching. So my dad might say something like, hey, David, how about a nice steak? And I'd be like, whatever. You know, and and you don't know who's in the restaurants who might see this nerd actually being nice to his dad right out in public for everybody to see. We don't want can't have that. You know, I remember when I was a a little boy, when my mom would just kind of stroke the back of my head. You know, you know, you know, you're talking about when somebody's just got their fingertips and they're just scratching your head. Oh, man, it feels so good. It was it felt so comforting. But then suddenly I turned 13 and if my mother started to rub my hair, I'd have to pull away can't have that now. Listen, in the name of Jesus, I give you permission to let your mommy be nice to you. Okay? It's okay. It doesn't make you weird. It doesn't make you stupid. It doesn't make you anything else. It makes you... Hold on to your heat. Are you, See, Are you ready for this? It makes you happy. It will bring joy to your life to enjoy your parents. All those years I spent in misery with that. You, you, you see, really... All that most people want is to be with somebody who's happy. All the people really want to be with somebody who likes other people. People really want to be with somebody who knows how to enjoy other people. If you know how to enjoy your parents, you're nice to your mom and your dad in public, right out in front of everybody and all the other kids. I'm here to tell you right now, all the other kids will watch you. They may even make fun of you, but deep down inside, they're going to envy every kind word and gentle expression of care. Even if they laugh at you, they're going to say, I wish I could be like that with my parents. I mean, I'm telling you, that is the truth. I was there. I've lived that. Young people, you don't have to be rebellious. First lie was short-term gratification leads to long-term happiness. That's a lie. It's hard to be a Christian. That's a lie. You have to be rebellious. That's a lie. Here's the next one. Listen to this. And I think probably some of you adults have heard this one. Here's lie number four. Nobody understands. Nobody understands. Well, let me just say this. What a bunch of hooey. Hooey. Can I give you the theological term for it? Hogwash. Absolute, sheer, unmitigated (laughs) baloney. A 15-year-old says to a 40-year-old adult, you don't understand. Well, of course he understands he was 15 once. Of course we understand. I mean, listen, look, look at all these old people here. Look around. Look at all these old people. Everybody here that's 60 years of age or older, I want you to raise your hand. Just raise your hand up. I can't. I'm almost there, but I'm not quite there, okay? Now, now those of you who raised hand, keep it up if you can. Some of you are like like, okay, I need a brace. I can't do it. Uh, uh, but, but, but let me, let me just ask you this. If, if you were ever 15, I want you to leave your hand up. Let me see your hand. Was any, look at that. Look around everybody. They were all 15 at one time. Now, if you weren't, if you skipped 15, put your hand down. <laughs> nobody, nobody skipped 15. All right. Now, <laughs> here's, here's the next one. Last thing, last one. Put your hand back up. If you're over 60, let me ask you this one. How many of you remember? Being 15. Look, look, look at that. Donna, you remember being 15? You remember that? I mean, so if a 15-year-old girl came up to you and said, oh, you don't understand what it's like. You don't know what it's like to be 15 and in love. You do remember that, don't you? Sure she does. Don't ever let Satan tell you that nobody understands. When he says that to you, all he's trying to do is isolate you. That's what a predator does. He's trying to isolate you from the very people that can bring you into a place of maturity. He's trying to isolate you. Don't ever let Satan tell you that. People do understand. We all in this room do understand. If you say to yourself, nobody understands, that will lead you into this error. Listen to this. Young people will say to their parents, don't you trust me? Don't you trust me? Why? No, (laughs) no, no, no. If I trusted you, that would be proof that I don't understand. (laughs) Parents, we just can't be dopey about this. You don't leave a 16-year-old boy alone with a 15-year-old girl in a house all day while you drive around looking at real estate and you say, behave yourselves. What's the matter with us when we think that way? Goodness gracious, they'll look at you with the guilelessness of a little dove and say, don't you trust me? You just look at them and say, not for a second. Why is that? It's because we've been there. We understand the overwhelming temptation. We understand that you can make a decision in the heat of a moment that you will regret for a lifetime. We understand the confusion. We understand the loneliness. We understand the mixture of feelings and emotions that you're going through. And I know that you stare at this decrepit old body before you, teenagers, and it's hard to imagine that it's true, but I can remember what it was like to be seventeen. But I'm telling you, it went by like lightning. Went by like lightning. Adults, can you back me up on this? I look at this old body, and I think you'll back me up on this. I look at this old body in the mirror, and I can't figure out who it is. You know, I mean, I don't look like this. Anybody, you know what I'm talking about? Anybody understand? I mean, listen. That, and, that, and I look at my brain is constantly writing checks that my body can't cash. You know, I mean, that's why that's why a few years ago I tried to play volleyball. And, and all I did was to do this and I messed up my elbow for weeks. I mean, it's just the way it is. When you, I mean, my back went out one time a few years ago. Guess what? How, you know what? What I was doing, what I was really straining it. I was sitting on the sofa typing on my computer and my back went out. This is, this is why, see my body, what happens is, you know, we go out uh, on a basketball court and we think all oh, these young whippersnappers, we know what we're doing. We can take them. We, we know what to do, but our mind sends the telegram to our legs and our legs say, think again, sucker. <laughs> Listen, I, but I do remember. We all remember Satan has lied to you. He he said these old fuddy-duddies were never teenagers. I give it to you on the authority of the Almighty God. Every one of them was a teenager at one point. They all know what you're going through. It may be the circumstances around you are different, but but they do understand they can relate and they can help you through. The next lie is this. This is the last one. Listen to this. Satan has lied... uh, to, to many of you with a filthy, rotten, deceptive lie. And I'm gonna tell you this one, and some of you are gonna say, you're going to, some of you are gonna pull back and say, wait a minute, I, don't, I think that's, that's not a lie, but, but let me, listen, listen to the end. Lie number five is that this is the best time of your life. Parents, grandparents, teachers, school principals, adults of every stripe and order, have unfortunately, with the best of intentions, reinforced that terrible lie. We say, enjoy your high school years. It's the best time of your life. Well, I just want to say, I rebuke that lie in the name of Jesus. Now it may be some of the most carefree. I look back at my high school years. It was certainly carefree. I didn't have bills to pay. I didn't have other things that I had to take care of. So it was carefree in that sense. But listen, this is not the best time in your life. It's not the best time of your life because maturity is, is yet, is to come and maturity is better than immaturity. Experience is better than inexperience. Wisdom is better than foolishness. Growth and development are better than stagnation. Balance and depth and controlled living with the wisdom of God are better than youthful energy without direction, without purpose, and without self-control. This is not the best time of your life. I'm here to tell you that God's best days for you are ahead of you. They're not going to be confined to the the four years that you're in high school or six years that you're in junior high and high school or for some of us seven or eight years, but uh, that's a different story altogether. But uh, the the, your, the best days of your life are not confined to that. You're just trying to figure out what life is during that time. And you don't even know. In fact, the research tell us that, tells us that brains don't fully develop until you're about 25 years of age. And so you don't even know what life is. Y- these are not the best years. I'm here to tell you, there are so much better days coming ahead of you. So much better days. Well, from from adolescence until 24, 25, the truth is your teenage years may end up being the worst time of your life. It may be the toughest time you endure because of the awkwardness, because of all the things that are going on in your in your body, because of all the things going on over the friends. My goodness, listen, you tell a teenager who, who's lonely and confused and upset his girlfriend has just broken up with him. He, he has demonic algebra staring him in the face and he's got acne all over his face. And you say to them, this is the best time of your life. No, no wonder they give up. But listen, I have good news for you. If you can just live through this, if you can conquer through this, adulthood is great. It's great. I mean... For the most part, if I want to go do something, I get in the car and go do it. Adulthood is awesome. I don't even know how I made it through my teen years, but I tell you, adulthood is so much better. Being married to my soulmate, the love of my life, is so much better than trying to figure out if a girl likes me or not. Having two beautiful children along with the maturity and the means to take care of them is so much better. This is not the best time of your life. Your best days are ahead of you. Your best days come well after you graduate from high school. If you can just hold on to God and and hang on to your soul and hang on to your sanity and get through this time of your life, I promise you the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Satan has lied to you. He's lied to you about pleasure. He's lied to you about life. He's lied to you about Christianity. He's lied to you about rebellion. He's lied to you that nobody understands. He's lied to you that this is the best time of your life, but God will tell you the truth. And God says, Your youth is important, so give it to me. God says, Make your youth count for me. Be an example of love of purity, of holiness, of truth, of decency. Be an example in the way you talk. Listen, young people, if you see adults around you that uh, talk inappropriately, don't take your cue for them and, be, and and talk like that. You be an example. You stand up as a man or a woman of God, even though you're young, and say, I'm not going to let anybody look down on me because I'm young. I'm going to talk in a way that honors God. Be an example in the way you live. Be an example in your love for Christ. Be an example in your love and appreciation and obedience to your parents, be an example in the way you walk with your friends, be an example in the way that you live. You can make a difference starting right now. In 1794, in Lincoln County, North Carolina, there was a revival. That revival was carried uh, on by, a, a, a well, it was carried from there by a Methodist circuit rider named William McKendry to Logan County, Kentucky. Now, Logan County, Kentucky, was commonly known as Rogue's Harbor. It was a haven for moonshiners, robbers, murderers, and outlaws. But William McKendry, who had been converted in that 1794 revival in Lincoln County, North Carolina, he began to preach house to house, tavern to tavern, village to village, and revival broke out in Rogue's Haven. There was such a move of the Holy Spirit in Logan County, Kentucky, that the power of God shut down the saloons, and it made, made it one of the safest counties in America by the turn of the century. In that revival, there was a man named T. Peter Cartwright that was converted. He became a preacher, and his contribution to the American frontier and to the spread of the gospel in the American frontier is it's almost mythical. It's so huge when you begin to look at the history of the church in America. Peter Cartwright was one of the most anointed men of God that has ever lived. There was another man that was converted in that revival. He became a local Baptist preacher in Logan County, uh, Kentucky. When he announced his call to preach, a local banker paid his way to go to Bible, Bible school. That Baptist preacher was a man named Reverend James. Reverend James had two sons, named Jesse and Frank. The first bank that Jesse, Jesse James ever robbed was the bank that was owned by the man who paid his dad's way to Bible school? He was brought up right in the heart of a great revival. You know, we think of Jesse James as being a product of some awful society, but Jesse James was brought up in a Baptist parsonage. He was brought up hearing the word. He, he was brought up on the heritage of a county that produced Peter Cartwright, this great man of God. He was brought up in the home of a man who was sent to Bible school by a Christian spirit-filled banker who paid his Bible school tuition. Yet in the face of all of that, Jesse James believed the lie. He rebelled against his parents. He rebelled against their God. He rebelled against their way. He believed that his teenage years were the most important years of his life and he squandered his adulthood for the pursuit of, of the immediate gratification of the flesh. And the name of Jesse James became feared throughout the American West, and he died young as a result of his choices. It's pathetic. You know what terrorizes me? It's not that some kid today living outside of God is planning some horrible act. That's frightening enough. God knows that's frightening enough, but that's not what really terrifies me. What really terrifies me is that there's some teenager brought up in the heart of Pentecostal America who has heard the gospel, who has sung the songs, who knows all the praise courses, who can quote the scripture, and is believing the lie of the enemy, and is about to, uh, just about to squander the one thing that they can give to God, their youth. Young people, give your youth to God while you have it. Don't be another one of those adults that say, I wish I would have done this sooner. I wish I would have served God as a teenager. You know, for most of my teenage years, I have nothing to show but regret. But then when when God got a hold of my life as a 17-year-old, changed everything. Give your youth to God while you have it. Just talk to him and say, Here, Lord, all I have is now. All I have is my teenage years. Right now, I have this moment. If you're 15, the truth is, you don't, know if, you, you don't know if you'll live to see 16. If you're 17, you don't know if you'll ever see 27. All you have is 17. If you're 17, give him 17. If you're eight, give him eight. Adults, if you're 68, give him 68. If you're 50, give him 50. All you have is now. Rebuke the lie and rebuke the liar and give God your now. Despise not your youth. You bow your head. Father, I come into your presence. I thank you, Lord, that you have great plans for our young people. Plans that would probably blow most of us away. Plans that there's some in the room might might hear and, and say, oh, I doubt that. I, I, I don't see that happening. But God, your plans are beyond our human understanding. Lord, I pray right now for our teenagers, those that are in here, those that, that are not here today, those that may be watching online. I just pray, God, that in Jesus' name, that you'd stir their hearts. And I know we have some Wonderful, spirit filled teenagers who love you, Lord God, in this church. And I pray, God, that you would encourage them, that they would take heart this scripture, that they would be an example of all of these things, they would be an example of what it means to be a follower of Christ, that they would lead the way for adults when we're sluggish, when we're not ready to move, that our young people would say, come on, let's go. We, we can do this. We can make a difference for God. We can change the city. God, I pray that you would use their energy, use their zeal, use what you've given to them, God, as they give themselves to you, even in their youth. I pray, God, that you would, you would help them, God, to give their first fruits to you. Not to wait until later and say, oh, I'll get things straight now with God later when I'm older. I want to just have fun now. But God, that they realize that that short, short-term gratification of the flesh will not bring them happiness. It will bring them long-term unhappiness. But God, that if they'll choose to, to serve you, if they'll say, Lord, I want to be holy now. I want to be a child of God now. I want to be spirit-filled now. I want to walk in your presence now. That you'll lead them to a life of fulfillment and joy that they can't even begin to imagine. I pray, God, that you would do it. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I don't know who you are or what's going on in your life, but I do know we have some young people in this room, and I want to know if there's any young person in this room that would say, Pastor Dave, I want you to pray for me, because I want to be that example. I want to be a man or woman of God, not when I grow up, but I want to be a man or a woman of God starting now. I want to make a difference for the kingdom. I want to change my school. I want to change my our youth ministry. I want to make, I want to be a catalyst for Jesus. If that's you, would you slip your hand up if you're a young person? You say, Pastor, pray for me. Would you put your hand up? Is there anybody? Yes. Yes. Anybody else? Yes. All right. Listen. Adult, you may be here and saying, saying to yourself, oh, well, he was talking to the teenagers. I'm off the hook today. No, because God still calls you to give your now. Doesn't matter what you did yesterday. Doesn't matter what you plan to do tomorrow. Will you give him now? Will you give him your life now? And then tomorrow you wake up and say, God, you can have now. But if you'd you'd say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. That's what I want. I want God to use me. I don't want to... Maybe you've given up because of things in the past and you thought, well, He can't really use me. Yes, He can. But you have to give yourself to Him. You have to to surrender to Him. If you'd like me to pray for you, just slip your hand up right where you are. Yes, all over the room. Father, You saw all the hands. The young people, those that were older, Lord, all we're here to do is say, Lord, here, I'm going to give you all that I have now. I offer myself to you. And God, I pray that in the name of Jesus that today, Lord God, that uh, that this would be a, an anchor point. That's what I'm asking for, God. Because I know that there's a lot of living to do, especially for our young people. There's a lot of living in front of them. And, and so, God, I can't deal with those days, but I can say, Lord, give us an anchor. Let this moment be that place where they, we drop an anchor and we say, wait, I remember, I remember that Sunday when, I, when Pastor prayed for me and I made a decision to say, I'm going to be an example. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to give God my youth. And God, that from this day forward, you would build on that foundation and you do greater things than any of us could ever dream. And Lord, for those that are older, that are saying, Lord, maybe I wasted a lot of years. But they're saying, God, I want to give you what I have now. I pray, God, that in Jesus' name you would give them hope, that you, you would raise them up in ministry, that you would use them to touch lives as they give themselves to you now. Empower us by your Spirit. And God, I pray that as we prepare to leave this place, I pray that we would go forth in the power and the anointing of God, that you'd use us to touch a world that is hurting, that we would shine a light in a dark world that we'd be people of love and not hate, that we'd be people who show the love of Christ and yet always speaks the truth in love. Let your favor and your anointing rest upon us. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.